Alright, the last lecture went long, so hopefully we'll be able to keep this one fairly short today. Um, but welcome back. It's time to continue our discussion of the Mikhail Bulgakov's The Master and Margarita. Um, and I realize that at this point you're probably fairly overwhelmed. A whole bunch of new names, a whole bunch of new characters, a whole bunch of new settings, a whole bunch of new strange cultural habits. It's rather overwhelming. Um, so rather than try and like work our way piece by piece through the story today, I want to devote this lecture to organizing. Um, sort of setting up everything that's going on and, and putting everything in its proper place. So we're going to dive back into chapters 1 to 4 a little bit to sort of sort things out, um, especially the characters and their relationships. Uh, but for the most part, the, the goal here is just going to be setting everything straight. Talking about the devil and his retinue, all of the mass elite members we keep mem running into, and sort of talking about why everybody is going just so freaking crazy over an apartment or two, um, which all has a lot to do with what communism and Soviet Moscow looks like in the 50s and 60s. Um, so I want to start with the devil today. Um, like, we talked a good bit about uh, Professor Boland's introduction in the last lecture. We talked about his story about Pilate and Yeshua, of course. Um, but we didn't really get a full picture despite, you know, the descriptions we've got. So let's, let's organize all this. Let's get all of our characters straight. Um, and obviously, like, we need to start with Professor Woland himself. Like, we know a lot about him. Like I said, we discussed him quite a bit in the last lecture. Um, we recognize that there's a lot of stories circulating about him. We have those, like, conflicting eyewitness accounts that we talked about in the, the first chapter. Um, in general, though, we should notice first that Woland is here and is recognized as a foreigner. Um, like, this is the first thing that everybody notices about him. Like, even when he's hanging out in uh, Berlioz and Lakotiev's apartment, like, the first impression everybody gets is he's from out of town. Um, again, unlike the way we usually talk about the devil, especially with, like, Irving's Devil and Tom Walker and the Devil and T Daniel Webster, it's sort of remarked upon that he is not typically Russian. He is German, perhaps, and he doesn't seem to deny this. Um... Now, again, like, nobody actually can prove that he's from out of town. The devil could very well be Russian in that sense, but it's left an open question by Bulgakov, and nobody seems to inquire too deeply. But the other thing to notice is that he's not alone in Moscow. Um, like, this is something we really didn't talk about, even though it warranted talking about last time. Um, but he has a lot of friends that he's traveling with. Um, and one of the things that you'll notice is that these friends, his retinue, they seem to, for the most part, have pretty explicit functions, um, pretty particular jobs. Uh, what's more, just about all the characters do seem to be references to other, like, devilish characters, especially in Faustian literature. Um, it's likely the case that Koroviev may be a reference to uh, Thomas Mann's Faust story. Um, our little friend Behemoth may hail from another set of Faust traditions. Azazello seems to be pretty closely aligned with vampires. Um, and we've got yet another, like, devilish character who we haven't yet met, who will once again sort of come from another tradition. Um, but again, notice that, like, Bulgakov's devil is coming to town in force here. 
Um, and Woland is certainly at the center of the whole thing. Like, this is the first passage where we actually get the name. Like, he introduces himself as Woland. Um, but it's also remarkable to note why he's in Moscow. Like, we should definitely remember back in the first few chapters, like, especially in the first chapter where he's talking to Berlioz and he's talking to, to Homeless, and he mentions, you know, he's here to get information. Um, and Woland is particularly excited when he discovers that, you know, it's okay to be an atheist in Soviet Russia. In fact, when Berlioz announces that, like, everybody's an atheist, like, nobody takes those fairy tales about Jesus or God or the devil seriously, um, Woland seems especially interested and even thanks Berlioz for giving him information. Um, but the other thing that we see Woland preparing to do is this magic show. Um, like, here it just starts to come out. Um, in the first chapter, you'll remember uh, when Berlioz asks, like, what he's doing here in Moscow, he mentions that he is a professor of black magic, a specialist in the field, and that part of the reason why he's in town is because some apparently fancy manuscript has been discovered in the, the museum recently, um, something that is really important and apparently has something to do with some fancy 11th or 12th century necromancer. Um, now, Berlioz doesn't follow up with this, you know, there can be experts in all sorts of things, there's nothing anti-communist about this, it, like itself, as alarming as it may seem to him, um, but we get a further sort of, we get further information as we see Woland running around in the, these second handful of chapters, uh, like when he confronts Lakotayev, there's apparently all this paperwork that has apparently been done. Like, Lakotiev can't remember doing it because he was apparently drunk off his ass yesterday. Um, but there's all this information, and there are posters going out, and there's going to be this big show put on by the Variety Theater, which Lakotiev is in charge of, put on by Masalit, um, the, the literary organization in Moscow. And apparently... All of this is above board. Everything is fine. We are all ready to go on Professor Woland's Black Magic Spectacular. Um, and that's ostensibly the reason why Woland is here at all. He's here to put on a show. He's here to put on a demonstration of black magic. And we should obviously be very, very curious about this. Like, why is the devil coming to Moscow to put on a show about black magic. Like, obviously, he is the, you know, authority on the subject. Like, we should remember Mephistopheles bouncing around on the witch's Sabbath and how, like, everybody was celebrating his presence uh, because they regarded him as, like, their king or their, their you know, authority. Um, if anyone is entitled to do a show on black magic, you would think it would be the devil. Uh, but notice also the way that it's presented here, that Moland is this out-of-town performer and and professor and expert coming to deliver this, you know, elaborate show about black magic to the communists who themselves don't believe in this stuff, who believe that it's all superstition and nonsense. And yet you also get the sense that Woland is not performing above board here. Like, he talks to Lakotiev as though all the paperwork has been done, but we know personally that Woland was hanging around in the park, you know, decapitating Berlioz and driving Ivan homeless insane. Um, not, you know, bumming around with Kustov or whoever it is that he was supposedly talking to making these arrangements for this show. Um, it would appear that the devil has been employing some of that black magic in getting this black magic show off the ground. Um, there seems to be some 
disconnect between the way that things are normally done and everything seems to just sort of fall into place um, as though Woland is, you know, orchestrating all this as he goes. Um, but again, we also, you know, he is still largely inscrutable to us as well. Like, we don't know what the deal is with his fancy cigarette case. We, we don't get any explanations of why he's here besides his black magic show. Um, we don't really get any insights into his identity. He doesn't give us any of those classy lines like Mephistopheles does. You know, I am the, the spirit of perpetual negation. Like, nothing like that. Um, and what's more, his, you know, his goings on, like his going from place to place also doesn't seem to make any sense either. He's obviously powerful. Like he can predict the future. He can predict Berlioz's decapitation. Um, he apparently does personally have interactions with Immanuel Kant, the great 18th century philosopher on the one hand, and apparently was hanging around watching Pilate and Jesus back in, you know, the first century on the other hand. Like this is, this is a well-to-do devil. Um, we can all, but most of his most of his actual magic, most of the things that he does to sort of like mess with people, is fairly subtle. Um, like we get that whole scene where Ivan Homeless has just watched Berlioz getting decapitated, and he's trying to chase after Woland and his his posse, um, and Homeless keeps getting thrown off the track, and in really, like, stupidly obvious ways. Like, he's chasing Woland and Koroviev and, and our cat friend, and all three of them sort of go their separate ways. Like, Koroviev just, like, vanishes onto a bus. Behemoth, the, the giant cat, apparently, like, tries to catch a tram. He, like, he even tries to pay his way at one point. Um, and, you know, obviously poor Ivan Homeless can't keep up with these two, but he sees Woland and he's chasing him, and yet Woolen never seems to get any closer. Like, Ivan can plow his way through the crowd, beat people out of his way, and Woolen still always is ahead of him. And then as Homeless is, per has, is pursuing him, he suddenly gets the idea that the devil is at some random apartment? Like, out of, the, out of nowhere, he's like, ah, they must be at the apartment. And he goes to this apartment, and it's just this random citizen and citizeness. And he, like, walks in on this poor woman in the shower, and she thinks that he's her lover or something. It's all very weird. Um, and then as soon as, you know, he's, like, feeling very embarrassed, like, oh, I'm so sorry, this is, there's obviously something sketchy and, like, something very adultery going on here, um, but he, like, steals a candle and an icon, and then, bam, he's like, oh, he's at the river. Like, not just at the river, but he, like, goes to the Moscow River, dives in, and somehow seems to expect to find Woolen sitting at the bottom of the river for some reason, at which point he gets back up and he realizes that, like, somebody stole all of his clothes. And now we have Ivan Homeless running around Moscow in somebody else's pajamas looking for him at Griboyadov's, which we'll come back to. But notice especially that Woolen seems to just be totally able to manipulate people in this way, to sort of, like, magically trick them into thinking things, sort of even infringing upon their free will in some ways. Um, and yet it's nothing dramatic it's nothing flashy there's no you know theatrics or pyrotechnics we don't see you know mephistopheles like 
making things appear with a puff of smoke or wine bursting into flame or we don't have like the pageantry of the witches all dancing around with the monkeys and stuff like we see in Goethe's Faust um it's much more low-key it's much more easy to attribute to other factors like Ivan Homeless's insanity um but that's also not the only person we see hanging around with the devil the other character who we see in fact he is the first of the devil's retinue that we see even before woland we get like a glimpse of this person appearing out of the mist um is koroviev um and koroviev is described as wearing this checkered like sport coat or something which is apparently hideous like it's just awful and very off-putting um he's tall and thin and he describes himself at one point as an ex-choir master um like somebody who used to direct a choir but no longer does um it's largely suggested that this w is probably a reference to thomas mann's faust because that particular faust was is like this great musician who sells his soul to the devil in order to you know become a truly famous well-recognized musician um which p.s man is writing this as a sort of condemnation of nazism but that's another story we unfortunately did not have the time to really read that one too deeply and i honestly don't know it too well so i can't say for sure you know how much this lines up um the other characteristic we should note about koroviev is that he wears these glasses the pince-nez um which is like this old-fashioned kind of glasses that don't have like things that go behind your ears instead they just like pinch your nose and they just sit on top of it but also notably the first time that we see his pince-nez his little glasses one of the lenses is cracked and then for every subsequent time we meet Koroviev, he's still wearing the glasses but that lens is gone entirely so here is this weird looking tall skinny dude in a white and black checked sport coat with his old-fashioned glasses one lens of which is just absolutely gone um this is the second person who seems to be hanging around with the devil and he seems to wield some authority like you'll notice that he is acting as woland's interpreter um when we meet nikonor ivanovich bosoy the the apartment sort of like owner kind of um we'll get back to that um Koroviev seems to be doing a lot of the businessy work like he hangs out with Woland when uh, they're talking to Lakodeev. Um, he seems to be the one primarily responsible for like throwing Ivan uh, homeless off the scent um, so like Ivan when he sees uh, when he sees Berlioz get decapitated by the tram he's like oh no we have to catch Woland he's a madman there's something bad about him he's destructive and Koroviev is like well you know as fellow citizens it's our responsibility to raise the alarm so you know on three we'll both yell help and get as many people's attention as possible and he's like one two and then he says three and homeless is shouting help help and Koroviev is just like watching him like he's a crazy person um so you know he very much sets homeless up to look silly and foolish and then when homeless gets mad at him like he disappears like Kurovia just like fades into the mist and then it reappears next to Woland. Um, so Kuroviev is obviously also fairly powerful in his own right. Um, and he seems to be having fun with it, importantly. Like Kuroviev is kind of working as the devil's second in command as his sort of butler and valet in, in Moscow. Um, but he's also just sort of enjoying messing with people in the process. And of course, the third character that we end up running into is Behemoth, the giant, like, black cat, 
which is just apparently hanging around with Woland and company as well. And we've seen him, like, in Chapter 4 especially, he's one of the ones that, that Homeless is trying to track down. And we get this really awesome scene where, like, you know, Woland and Koroviev and Behemoth are all running away, um, and Behemoth tries to catch a tram, and he, like, gets up onto the stairs of the tram, and he's got a 10 kopeck piece. Like, he's gonna pay... He's gonna. He has a fare, and the the person who's running the tram is like, nope, no cats. Which Kuroviev, like, or w- which Behemoth doesn't seem to take a miss. Like he pockets his coin again, but then as soon as the tram goes by, he just like jumps onto the back of it like a kid who is sort of like bumming a ride off of a bus or something. Um, so you know, homeless is especially struck by this behavior. That here is this giant cat like he's earlier described as though he's the size of a sow like a, a large pig um and here's this giant cat who's just you know hopping onto a tram like anybody who you know was refused a fare um we also get like a sort of passing reference um that Koroviev mentions like when uh i think it's when uh nikonor ivanovich is snooping around um Koroviev mentions that like they're washing the cat in the next room and that he's more than welcome to meet the cat if he wants to wants to so it seems that Woland at this point like as late as this chapter with Nikonor Ivanovich has kind of become a little bit reclusive and now Koroviev and Be- Behemoth the cat are apparently doing most of his dirty work um watch for Behemoth like he's hilarious for one thing like the fact that there is a giant cat wandering around in moscow causing havoc is just a riot a lot of the time and behemoth is a clown like he will play up the fact that he is trying to be genteel and respectable despite the fact that he's a giant black cat like it's very ridiculous and kind of hilarious the sort of antics that behemoth gets into um but we also have one other character that we've been introduced to at this point, Azazello, um, who has the flaming red hair and the one especially large fang. Um, he appears when Lakodiev is about to get, like, dispatched to Yalta. Um, and you'll notice that, look, that Azazello typically shows up when some dirty business is about to go down. Um, if Koroviev is the devil's second-in-command and Behemoth seems to be something approximating his court jester, Azazello seems to be his enforcer. Um, like, when somebody needs to be, you know, axed or gotten out of the way or, you know, dispatched to faraway shores, it's Azazello who's going to be doing the dirty work. Um, and, you know, he's fairly, like, sporting about it. He seems to be pretty decent um, as, you know, devilish characters go um when he does when we see him sort of like getting rid of um Stiopa Lakodiev like Azazello just shows up fairly magically um and then just chucks him the devil out of Moscow as he puts it um he seems to relish his particular job here um, and we will naturally run into all four of these characters more and more as the story goes on. Um, in the second half, especially, the, these characters will, will get more opportunity to sort of see them in repose rather than, like, messing with people. Um, and we'll be able to sort of assess their characters more clearly. Um, but notice them as they show up. We've got, you know, Woland behind the scenes, apparently engaging in some black magic and apparently doing, like, high-level devil stuff. 
um, Koroviev, the second in command, like smoothing out all of the bureaucratic details and being basically the diplomat of the group. Uh, Behemoth just causing havoc because Behemoth. And then Azazello, who's like doing the dirty work and getting rid of people for, for Warland and company. Um, so that is our Devil's Retinue as we've met them so far. Keep an eye out on them as they appear in various chapters. Uh, but you'll also notice that we've sort of established a kind of pattern here at this point in the story. Um, that, you know, we... On the one hand, we're getting, like, all this... The, the plot development about Ivan Homeless and his descent into insanity. Um, on the other hand, we are seeing multiple new characters, like Lakodeev, like Nikonor Ivanovich, who show up, have an interaction with the devil in his retinue, and then they get offed in one way or another. They are judged. They are dispatched. Um, they prove themselves to be obstacles, and then the devil gets rid of them. Um, so with that in mind, let's jump to the other side of the conversation. Let's talk about the humans that we've run into so far. Um, now that we've got our devilish characters straightened out, let's talk about the randos that we're running into related to Massily and otherwise. Um, obviously we should start with the two that we started with in chapter one. We have Nikolai, or Ivan Nikolaevich Homeless. He is probably as close to a main character as we've got at this point, though technically the hero of the story has not appeared yet. We will meet him in our next reading, I believe. Um, so Homeless is a poet, as we discussed, and he's a fairly low-ranking poet. Remember, Berlioz gets to boss him around, um, tell him to like totally redo his poem that, you know, was that assumed that Jesus was actually a real person. Um, but notice, too, that Homeless is really having a couple of rough days here. Um, after watching Berlioz get decapitated, he has his mad dash across Moscow when he loses his clothes and he's barging into random people's apartments and he's apparently thinking that, like, he can track down the devil at the bottom of the river. And we ultimately find him charging into Griboyadov's, which is where Masalite all seems to be meeting and they very quickly dispatch him to an insane asylum. Um, and at this point, like, he's had a fairly substantial conversation with Stavrinsky, the, the head of the asylum or the head of this institution. And Stavrinsky has kind of convinced Ivan Homeless that he seems like a crazy person. Like, as much as Ivan Homeless thinks he's doing the right thing, is trying to track down Woland and, you know, trying to explain to people that he's dangerous and, and pretend that he killed Berlioz, nobody's paying any attention to him because, you know, think about what he looks like right now. Charging into Griboyadov's in his underpants and pajamas, shouting at the top of his lungs about this guy who apparently knew Punch's pilot. Like, yeah, he sounds like a crazy person. Um, and it takes this long for... Uh, homeless to realize that he sounds like a crazy person. But at the same time, notice, you know, there's that chapter when he first shows up at the asylum where Ryukin sort of like stuffs him in the back of the car and they go to the asylum and they're like packing him out and, you know, everybody is sort of like evaluating him and trying to figure out what, what's going on. Um, that Ryukin at one point notices that Homeless does not have crazy eyes. He seems sane. Like, he seems lucid. And there's obviously truth to this. Like, we, the audience, know that Homeless is totally right. Like, Homeless is the one person 
acting properly in this situation. The devil is in fact running amok in Moscow. He, this person did in fact claim to know Pontius Pilate. He did tell this elaborate and apparently supernatural story about Pontius Pilate and Yeshua and claimed to have been there on the porch. Like all of that is reported correctly. The problem is that uh, apparently Woland has also gotten in poor Homeless's head, and as a consequence, he is, you know, running all over Moscow in crazy places and in his underwear trying to convince everyone to listen to him, and yeah, obviously that's not going to work. Um, like, as Stavrinsky points out to him, you know, he first arrived at the asylum after running around in his underpants, demanded to call the police, did so, demanded the police send out five motorcycles with machine guns in search of this man that nobody else has ever seen, and then promptly tried to jump out a window when he was, uh, when they attempted to sedate him. Like, this is not the behavior of a normal, like, sane person. And yet, honestly, it is the behavior of a normal sane person. A normal sane person who believes that everyone he knows is in danger. Homeless is responding responsibly. And this should also remind us of this whole theme that we've sort of been bumping up against about truth and lies. Homeless is suffering the consequences of telling the truth. And even when Berlioz was trying to, like, calm down Woland when after the Woland had told the story about Pontius Pilate, like, Berlioz is sort of, like, winking to Homeless, like, dude, don't, don't freak him out, like, he's obviously really worked up, just play along. And Homeless doesn't. Like, Homeless is like, what do you mean? Of course the devil doesn't exist, and this just makes Woland even more mad, or he's like, you know... This person is a crazy person. Stop acting like a crazy person. And yet Woland is dangerous. Um, Homeless is honestly being courageously truthful here. He's suffering all of the consequences and he's kind of oblivious to it as it's happening. But at the same time, there's something admirable about his behavior, which is why we should probably think of him as the closest thing to a protagonist at this point, the closest thing to our hero at this point. It also helps that he's the character we've followed around the most. Like, for most of the characters, they will, you know, appear for a chapter and disappear a chapter later, but Homeless has stuck around, not just from the very beginning of the book, but all the way through, like, five or six chapters at this point, um, more than any other character besides Woland and his retinue himself. Um, the other character, obviously, that we should talk about is Berlioz. Um... He is, as we talked about last time, kind of a bigwig in Masselite. He apparently is the editor for this major periodical that Homeless has been published in. And you'll notice that, like, his death has major repercussions when everybody hears about it in Griboyadovs. Um, he's a big deal. Like, not a huge deal. He's not, like, you know, super-duper party member or really high-ranked or a general, as some of the Masselite members point out. Um, but he is a big deal, and his death is a big deal. Like, people come to Griboyadov's, announce that Berlioz is dead, and everything freezes for a while, although eventually people get hungry, so they go back to eating and everything goes back to normal. Um, but the other thing to notice is Berlioz has a pretty swanky apartment, um, the one that he shares with Stiopa Lakodeev. Um... He also seems to be, you know, as a high-ranking member of Masili, he has a certain amount of power and discretion. 
Um, so, you know, like everybody remarks on Berlioz's death and things are frequently thrown into disarray. You know, everybody resents the fact that Berlioz doesn't show up for the mass elite meeting he was supposed to attend at 10 o'clock. And then when they realize that the guy's dead, they're, you know, less upset with him specifically, but they're very much thrown out of joint as a consequence. Um, but Berlioz obviously is dead at this point. He has been decapitated and yet... We're going to find him popping up again over the course of this novel. Like, as much as he may be dead, he is not forgotten, and he still has his role to play, strangely enough. Um, being dead does not disqualify you from participation in the Devil's Plans, as you should expect. Uh, but you'll also notice that all of the characters, all of these human characters that we've encountered so far, with the exception of Nikonor Ivanovich Bosoy, um, are all connected to Masalite in one way or another, in a greater or lesser sense. So Berlioz, for example, he is our, you know, head honcho for this one periodical. He shares an apartment with Stiopa Lakodeev, and Lakodeev, you'll remember, is the manager of the Variety Theater. Um, mass elite, like the Moscow Literature Association, this was a fairly common sort of abbreviation. Like, there was, in fact, a literature union in Moscow at the time that Bulgakov is very much kind of parodying here, um, even though he doesn't use the same names or terminology. Um, this is, you know, in communism because, like, the this is supposedly a government-controlled and operated um, by the workers, trade unions are the sort of major power structures that are that are in place here um so you'll notice that like when um when ivan homeless gets stuck in his sanitarium one of the first questions the doctor asks is does he belong to a trade union um that's important uh to the doctor because it basically entails his social status um like this would be equivalent to you know is he employed in our nation today, um, you would think l less of someone if they were unemployed. You would suspect that they are, you know, a bad person, um, as unfair as that assessment may be. If you don't belong to a trade union in Moscow, there will be repercussions. You probably don't have a house. You probably don't have an apartment. Nobody is independently wealthy in some like independent sense from a trade union or a bigger industry organization so mass elite is that organization for writers in moscow berlioz is connected to it because he's a bigwig editor lakodiev is connected to it because he's a bigwig theater operator and they put on the performances that you know the playwrights of mass elite will write um ivan homeless is connected to it as an actual um as an actual poet, um, as bad a poet as he may actually be, it, it, we discover that, you know, he's actually kind of lousy over the course of the, these chapters. Um, and for that matter, Nikonor Ivanovich is connected to it, not as a poet or a writer or anything having to do with writing, but as a landlord? See, this is where things get a little bit tricky and we have to kind of talk about the way that Moscow politics and associations like this actually work um, you'll notice when we are introduced to Griboyadovs, which is like the headquarters for mass elite um, there are all of these doors and each of the doors has like this special um this special name on the door to sort of indicate what job it that that door uh like 
covers and you'll notice like there's this whole page on 53 where we see all these doors with all these things these offices inside so there's like the fishing and vacation session section and there's like a door for one day creative trips and there's a door for Paralegino, which we'll come back to and there's this door for the housing question which is apparently bat like opening and slamming all day long and there's this huge line of people um, for the housing question door. Um, and we know that it's a huge line of people because we're told that it is the longest line, and yet later, a little farther down, um, we have the full-scale creative vacations door, and it's a lesser line, but still a substantial one, i.e. there are 150 people in line outside this door. So the housing question door has to be like two, three hundred people that are waiting in line outside this door. Now, Bulgakov does not dwell on this. This is not news for Bulgakov. This is life for Bulgakov. Um, you should be thinking of, you know, back in the Cold War, like in the late 80s and early 90s, um, how there were like huge lines just for bread in Moscow and the major cities in Russia. Um, that people, because of the sort of disorganization of the government, because of the corruption of the government, there were massive quantities of people who couldn't get their daily necessities. And this is a side effect of communism under Stalin. See, um, Russia has always had a bit of a housing problem. Uh, like, we talked a little bit quite a while ago at this point about Peter the Great in the 18th century sort of making Russia into a modern European nation. Um, one of the things that Peter the Great really didn't take into mind is that the, is that like major cities like St. Petersburg and Moscow did not have the infrastructure for massive industrial growth. Like they weren't big enough. Um, there weren't enough apartments. And as a consequence, in the 19th century, you will hear stories, like if you read Dostoevsky, you'll hear about like these you know, college graduates who hold down a decent enough job, who have this shitty little apartment that is like nothing more than a closet in the back of somebody else's bigger apartment. That like one single apartment, they'll like partition it off so you know three different families can live in two different rooms. Um, this is pretty common in 19th century Russia, in St. Petersburg and Moscow especially. It's sort of like the two major urban centers. Um, and what's more, you know, as much as this is a problem in the 19th century, under Stalin, who like immediately starts to centralize industry and immediately starts to centralize commerce in Moscow especially, it just like gets even worse over time like stalin builds massive quantities of government housing projects and it is never ever enough there is a gigantic housing shortage and what's more the housing like distribution is always run through the trade unions so you know if you do not have a job if you do not belong to a trade union there's literally no way for you to get an apartment it's just not possible. Like, you have to go through those channels. Um, so the reason why we see massively, like, bustling with people who are trying to, you know, get in the door called the housing question is because they're looking for a home. Like, these are homeless people, or they're people with, like, really shitty apartments who are trying to upgrade to someplace better, to someplace more respectable, to get an entire room to themselves instead of just this tiny half a closet. 
Which means when Berlioz dies and he and his swanky apartment that he and Stiopa Lakotiev enjoy together, like multiple rooms for just these two men, they used to be married, both of them used to be married, but both of their wives have left them for other men, P.S. Um, there's sort of like a little side note in there as we meet Stiopa Lakotiev. Um, that means Lakotiev is in this room, is in this apartment all to himself like with multiple offices multiple rooms this is hugely luxuriant um and as a result like people are freaking out about this this probably means that somebody with a decent sized apartment is going to try and get into berlioz's spot and get his apartment and somebody below him like somebody who uh who is below this person who is moving up will try and get into the newly vacated apartment that he was in and this whole domino effect is taking place um but notice too like that when Nikonor Ivanovich, who is very much just the landlord for the building in where Berlioz is, has been vacated, um, we get this passage at the beginning of chapter 9 where we see that Nikonor Ivanovich is being bombarded with people trying to get a hold of this apartment. Like, Berlioz is barely dead in the ground at this point. Like, they haven't even buried the body. Um, and, you know, 7 o'clock Thursday morning, like, this is less than... 10 hours after Berlioz's death um everybody is clamoring to get this this space to get into Berlioz's old apartment um so on page 92 you can read the news of Berlioz's death spread through the whole house with a sort of supernatural speed and as of seven o'clock Thursday morning Bosoy began to receive telephone calls and then personal visits with declarations containing claims to the deceased's living space in a period of two hours Nikonor Ivanovich received 32 such declarations in two hours the landlord, Nikonor Ivanovich, the guy who's in charge of distributing the, the household for the for mass elite, has been petitioned by 32 separate people. Like, we're talking about literally one person every four minutes. He's getting phone calls, people knocking at the door. They're all trying to get Berlioz's apartment. And notice what this includes. They contained pleas, threats, libels, denunciations, promises to do renovations at their own expense, references to unbearable overcrowding and the impossibility of living in the same apartment with bandits. Among others, there were a description, staggering in its artistic power, of the theft from apartment number 31 of some meat dumplings tucked directly into the pocket of a suit jacket, two vows to end life by suicide, and one confession of a secret pregnancy. People are desperate for this apartment. Like, they are, you know, pleading, they are begging, they are, you know, threatening him. They are saying, you know, hey, just let me in and I'm going to, like, spend my own money to make the apartment way better. Like, I'll install central plumbing, I'll do it at my own expense, just get me out of my fucking living situation. Like, anything that he can do. And we've got people who are saying, you know, oh, I can't live with these people anymore, this whole meat dumpling story. Or there's one person who's like, I will kill myself if you do not give me this apartment. And yet another person who's like, I am secretly pregnant and I need the place to, to you know raise my children like Nikonor Ivanovich is bombarded with this and you know notice that it is expressed in chapter 9 as though this is a torment to him that he suffers but at the same time notice 
because of the way this power structure is oriented, because Nikonor Ivanovich receives his authority from Masalite, which receives their authority from the government, and because the demand for this apartment is so high, notice that Nikonor Ivanovich is getting some really nice offers here. Like, bribes are included here. Nikonor Ivanovich, as much as he is suffering for, all of, for having to deal with all of these people, he is in a position to enjoy tremendous profit if he is willing to be corrupt. And you better believe he's looking for the best offer at this point. Notice, too, that this is pretty constant for all of Masalite. Like, we talked about Griboyadovs and all of its various doors. One of the doors that everyone seems to be most interested in, most excited about, are these big vacations. Um, the big vacations to Yalta, or the Winter Palace, like the place where the Tsars used to live. It's a bit of an exaggeration on Bulgakov's part, but nonetheless, it's kind of a nice touch that, like, you can live where the Tsars used to live. That, like, Masalit has this much power that they can sort of disseminate. Um, you'll also notice that, like, there's this long conversation in Chapter 5 where, like, people are getting grumpy about Perlagino, um, the village where you can go. Um, and we've got this one poet who goes by the name of Boson George, who's, like, not mocking people for not being able to get the cottages at Perlagino. Um, so we get this line, it's nice now on the Chiasma, Boson George needled those present, knowing that the Perlagino on the Chiasma, the country colony for writers, was everybody's sore spot. There's nightingales singing already. I always work better in the country, especially in spring. It's the third year I've paid in so as to send my wife with goiter to this paradise, but there's nothing to be spied amidst the waves, the novelist Ironum Poprikin said venomously and bitterly. Notice, you know, he's been trying to get one of these cottages for three years, no success. They are absolutely swamped. But notice, too, that they turn pretty quickly on this. Some are lucky and some aren't, the critic Abakov droned from the windowsill. Boson George's little eyes lit up with glee, and she said, softening her contralto, We mustn't be envious, comrades. There's twenty-two dachas in all, and only seven more being built, and there's three thousand of us in Masalite. See, here is the central problem of communism under Stalin. In theory, the workers govern themselves. They distribute the goods, they distribute the perks, they distribute the benefits. But in practice, there's 3,000 people in this trade union, there's only 25 dachas to go around, and as a consequence, not everyone is going to get one. And notice that the people who do pretty consistently tend to be at the top of the ladder. So we get, Boson went on, what can be done? Naturally, it's the most talented of us that got the dachas. Boson George is convinced it's the best writers who get the dachas. But who gets to decide who the best are? Remember, we saw this whole conversation with Berlioz and Homeless at the very beginning, where Berlioz is criticizing Homeless's poem not because it's bad, like, if anything, Bulgakov seems to suggest that the poem is actually really good. It does a really good job of giving Christ lifelike qualities. But that's not what Berlioz is into. Berlioz wants a poem that toes the party line. So good writers aren't necessarily the one getting the perks. It's the one who are towing the line, the ones who are following the communist agenda, the ones who play politics best. And notice how people respond to Boson when he says, it's the most talented of us that get the Dutches. The generals, Glukarev, the scenarist, cut right into the squabble. 
Beskudnikov, with an artificial yawn, walked out of the room. Five rooms to himself, and Perilegino, Glukarev said beside him. Lavrovich has six to himself, Deniskin cried out, and the dining room's paneled in oak. Notice, first, they're all after one of these cottages because their living situation in Moscow is so terrible. The idea that any one of them could enjoy a six-room dacha to themselves is luxurious to the point of, like, unimaginable riches and, and, and wealth. Boson George is sort of poking fun at them, suggesting, well, the only reason you haven't gotten one of these dachas is because you were inferior writers. But Gukarev is pointing out, no, it's just the high-ranking party officials who keep getting the dachas. You know, here's What's-His-Face with his wife with goiter who's been waiting three years, no luck, but some general has gotten like six months to himself in one of these six-room dachas and nobody seems to complain. It's not fair. This is the corruption that is very evident in communist society at this point. It's not talent that wins, it's your adherence to the party line. It's how well you get along with higher-up officials. Think of Berlioz, the fact that he's telling Homeless, this is how I want this poem, if you do it my way, you get perks. You maybe get an upgrade in your living conditions. All of this power is concentrated in this one place, and it is very rife with corruption and abuse. Notice, too, that Griboyadov's itself is kind of a paradise of corruption and abuse. Um, notice, like, the restaurant especially. Bulgakov spends quite a bit of time talking about how great the restaurant is, like how you can get this, some of the best fish in all of Moscow. Um, like, the, the perch, uh, he just sings its praises at long length. Um, but at the same time, notice that there's a sort of frustration there as well. Um, we have this conversation between Mvrosi and Foka where they're talking about the comparative price of fish. Um, I have no special knowledge, Mvrosi protested, just the ordinary wish to live like a human being. You mean to say, Foka, that perch can be met with at the Colosseum as well, but at the Colosseum a portion of perch costs 13 rubles, 15 kopecks, and here, 550. Besides, at the Colosseum, they serve three-day-old perch. And besides, there's no guarantee you won't get slapped in the mug with a bunch of grapes at the Colosseum by the first young man who bursts in from Theater Alley. No, I'm categorically opposed to the Colosseum, the gastronome Ambrosi boomed for the whole boulevard to hear. Don't try to convince me. Notice, not just the food is good, but it's also cheap. Like, I know that this doesn't seem to make any sense. There's a reason why this is the case. But you can get a much better perch for a third the price at Griboyadov's than you can get it on the street. Like, if you want to make your own perch, you're probably going to pay twice as much, have to cook it yourself and make it yourself, or if you are one of the elite members of Mass Elite with all those nice little government culture grants and all that money funneling down from above, you can have the same meal three times as good for one-third the price. That's the perks of being in the organization. And Bulgakov emphasizes this as well. Like, even the card that they have is, like, embossed leather with, like, these gold gilt edges. Like, everybody knows, everybody in Moscow recognizes the authority of this card, the luxuriousness of this card, and the privilege of being in Masselite. Like, as much as there are definitely those who have and those who ha do not have, even within Mass Elite, being a part of Mass Elite, like having any writing talent whatsoever that is recognized by the state, 
is a privilege. It gives you a lot of perks. It gives you a lot of advantages that other people just don't have. And this isn't fair. Like, this is kind of what Bulgakov is emphasizing. And there's even a point, like, in this whole passage when the jazz band strikes up, that he mentions, you know, that this is, in a sense, hell. Streaming with sweat, wagers carried sweating mugs of beer over their heads, shouting hoarsely and with hatred, Excuse me, citizen! Somewhere through a megaphone, a voice commanded, One Karski Shashlik! Two Zubrovkas! Homestyle Tripe! The high voice no longer sang, but howled, Hallelujah! The clashing of golden cymbals in the band sometimes even drowned out the clashing of dishes which the dishwasher sent down a sloping chute to the kitchen. In short, hell. Bulgakov is also quick to notice that a lot of the people in Masoli do not deserve to be there. Um, most of the writers that he sort of interacts with are terrible. Um, so, you know, he lists this long list of people who are at Graboyadov's this night when, when Berlioz is killed, and he gives us this list of names, Babunov, Blasphemsky, Sweetkin, Smatchstick, and Adolfina Buz Buzdjak. Like, notice, Babunov? Really? Like, this is not an actual Russian name, this is, like, Baboon, but made into a Russian name. Or Blasphemsky, like, Blasphemer, but changed into a Russian name. Um, Smashstick. Like, Piver and Volokonsky do a pretty good job of, like, translating these to sound like English words. Um, obviously, that's, these are not, like, transliterated from the actual Russian. Um, they are trying to get at the fact that, like, Bulgakov is making fun here. Um... But notice, too, that, like, even the one poet that we do sort of encounter, in addition to Homeless, like, Homeless also seems to be kind of questioning his own talent, um, is Ryumkin. Uh, like, Ryumkin is the guy who, you know, packs, uh, packs Homeless off and, and goes to the insane asylum with him. And there's this great little scene where, you know, he's being abused by Homeless and Homeless, like, practically, like, beats him at one point. Um, and Ryukin is really upset about this. Like, he gave up his night to help Homeless. And now here's Homeless, like, taking a shit on him and making him miserable. You know, he doesn't deserve this. He's trying to be a good person. But on the way home, Ryukin realizes, you know... The reason why he feels so lousy actually has nothing to do with the fact that, you know, Homeless is not grateful for for all that Ryukin has done for him. You know, he's a crazy person. Of course he isn't grateful. What was he expecting? No, what makes Ryukin upset is the fact that Homeless insulted him and those insults hit home. Um... So if you look on page 70 at the, the end of the chapter, Schizophrenia, as was said, we get this really interesting sort of look at Ryukin, the random poet. Um, and notice, we're not going to run into Ryukin again. Like, he's just another one of our sort of passing characters in this elaborate drama. Uh, but it's a really interesting case study here. Um, the writer's state of mind was terrible. It was becoming clear that his visit to the House of Sorrow had left the deepest mark on him. Ryukin tried to understand what was tormenting him. The corridor with blue lights, which had stuck itself to his memory? The thought that there is no greater misfortune in the world than the loss of reason? Yes, yes, of course, that too, but that... that's only a general thought. There's something else. What is it? An insult, that's what. Yes, yes, insulting words hurled right in the face by homeless. And the trouble is not that they were insulting, but that there was truth in them. The poet no longer looked around, but staring into the dirty, shaking floor, began muttering something, whining, gnawing in himself. Yes, poetry. 
He was 32 years old, and indeed, what then? So then he would go on writing his several poems a year. Into old age? Yes, into old age. What would these poets bring him? Glory? What nonsense. Don't deceive yourself, at least. Glory will never come to someone who writes bad poems. What makes them bad? The truth. He was telling the truth, Ryukin addressed himself mercilessly. I don't believe in anything I write. Remember, when we were talking about Homeless and Berlioz at the very beginning, you know, here's Berlioz critiquing Homeless's poem because, you know, it doesn't do enough to disparage Christ. It still believes that Christ was an actual person. He's not critiquing Homeless for the poem being good or bad. He's not saying whether or not Homeless wrote a good poem. It doesn't matter whether Homeless wrote a good poem or not. What matters is, did it live up to the political standard? Here is Ryukin realizing the exact same thing about his own poetry. He doesn't believe in anything that he writes. He doesn't give a shit. Why should he? His entire talent, his entire career has been designed to make the people at the top of the ladder happy. If he improves and impresses the leaders at Masalit, he will get fancy perch dinners at Griboyadov's, perhaps an outing in the countryside for a week or two. He might get a really swanky apartment like Berlioz has. But none of that has to do with talent. None of that has to do with writing a good poem. None of that has anything to do with writing truth. That's what Homeless's current power is. That's why Homeless affects Ryukin as much as he does. In his delirium, or lack of delirium, Homeless is telling the truth. Maybe for the first time. That's what's so jarring to Ryukin. That's what's so upsetting. Homeless, whether you know a good poet, bad poet, or otherwise, is now finally saying something true, not mincing words, not playing politics, not just saying what people want him to say, not just doing what will get him accolade and respect. Glory is completely disconnected from Ryukin, and Ryukin realizes it at this moment. But he goes on. Poisoned by this burst of neurasthenia, the poet swayed. The floor under him stopped shaking. Ryukin raised his head and saw that he had long been in Moscow, and what's more, that it was dawn over Moscow, that the cloud was underlit with gold, that his truck had stopped, caught in a column of other vehicles at the turn onto the boulevard, and that very close to him on a pedestal stood a metal man, his head inclined slightly, gazing at the boulevard with indifference." The statue that he runs into, the metal man that we describe here, is actually the famous statue of Pushkin on a major Moscow boulevard. Like, this was erected in honor of Pushkin, the greatest of the Russian poets, the writer of Eugene Onogen and the Queen of Spades, um, the writer of great poetry like the Bronze Horseman. Like, Pushkin is the highest, best recognized poet in Russia. Like, all of the great writers of, of Russian literature, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, Gogol, Bulgakov himself, like Chekhov, all of these great writers consider poet or Pushkin to be the greatest of the Russian poets. He is their Shakespeare. He is their Moliere. He is their Goethe. And Ryukin at this moment sees the statue and loses it. Some strange thoughts flooded the head of the ailing poet. There's an example of real luck. Here Ryukin rose to his full height on the flatbed of the truck and raised his arm, for some reason attacking the cast-iron man who was not bothering anyone. Whatever step he made in his life, whatever happened to him, it all turned to his benefit. It all led to his glory. But what did he do? 
I can't conceive. Is there anything special in the words, the murky snowstorm? I don't understand. Luck. Sheer luck, Ryukin concluded with venom and felt the truck moving under him. He shot him. That white guard shot him, smashed his hip, and assured his immortality. Ryukin is jealous. And notice that this has kind of been the theme of the two chapters about Griboyadov. Jealousy. Like, Bulgakov opens it by saying, you know, let's write an ode to envy. Envy is a powerful emotion. It informs so much of what's going on here. But it's just envy. It's just jealousy. It has nothing to do with being good or bad at writing. It has nothing to do with talent. It has nothing to do with people who are getting awards for talent the way that Boson George seems to suggest. Ryukin looks at Pushkin and says, how were you so fucking lucky? Because to him, that's all that writing ever has been. Like, it doesn't matter how well or how poorly Pushkin wrote to Ryukin. Ryukin doesn't recognize talent. All he recognizes is reward. Ryukin isn't writing poems so he will live in immortality, so he will achieve glory, or rather, that's all he's writing them for. All that Ryukin wants is recognition. He wants the apartment. He wants the vacations. He wants the, the fancy meals at Griboyadov's. He doesn't care about the actual poetry, and that's why his poems suck. Pushkin wrote because he wanted to write. Pushkin wrote something that he believed, and as a consequence, he was rendered immortal. Ryukin resents him for this. Why can't he just get the same awards? Why can't he enjoy the same recognition? It's true what Homeless said, that he's a terrible poet, that he's lousy, and he's lousy because he doesn't care, and he doesn't care because caring doesn't get him anywhere. It only makes things worse. If you write the truth as a poet, you get kicked out of Massily and you lose all those privileges. Because that's not what people want to, want to hear. That's not what the party wants to print. And Bulgakov understands this personally. Like, Bulgakov constantly struggled with the censors. He was probably the foremost playwright in Russia in the 40s and 50s, and yet he struggled under these limitations. He did not want to write just, you know, more government-approved nonsense. Bulgakov chafed under these limitations, and Stalin was honestly really indulgent with him. Like, Bulgakov got away with shit that nobody could get away with because he was, like, a personal favorite of Stalin's. And Bulgakov himself can't explain this. But Bulgakov is locked in this system where bureaucrats and, you know, middle managers like Nikolai Ivanovich Bosoy or like Berlioz are just, you know, nitpicking away at his abilities. You've got these critics who are tearing down his works and they have this incredible power over your future. They can control where you live, what you eat, how much your food costs. All of this is in their power and it's not fair. It doesn't have anything to do with talent at this point. It's completely indifferent to whether or not you write a good story, a good play, or a good poem. And all that these, that the vast majority of these writers want is that recognition. They're just jealous. Because jealousy is what drives them. Jealousy is what makes them work harder. Jealousy is what makes them write what the censors want to hear. So being successful has nothing to do with talent. It only has, has to do with how much of yourself you're willing to let die for the sake of the vacation, the apartment, the swag. Ryukin has let himself completely die. 
And at this moment, he realizes it. And he's really upset, and for good reason. He lied. He sacrificed himself. You know, if Yeshua is our sort of sterling example for the person unwilling to compromise, the person willing to tell the truth, never willing to, you know, settle for just safety or convenience, Ryukin is almost the exact opposite. He has given up everything of himself that he had. And now, what is he? Just jealous, empty, envious. He doesn't care. He doesn't have anything even to live for at this point. So he goes and he gets like crazy plastered drunk. There's nothing else for it at this point. A quarter of an hour later, we're told, Ryukin sat in complete solitude, hunched over his bream, drinking glass after glass, understanding and recognizing that it was no longer possible to set anything right in his life, that it was only possible to forget. This is the tragedy that Bulgakov is pointing out here. That, you know, all of these writers are getting, like, snuffed out and replaced with all of these upstarts, these jealous, envious people with no talent, no integrity, no sense of truth, but a envy that pervades them, that drives them to do this. And that gets rewarded in the society, in Masalit, in Griboyadovs. Now, the last couple of things I do want to talk about are our two judgments here. Um, namely, we have Stiopa Lakodeev and we have Nikonor Ivanovich Bosoy. Um, and the sort of drama surrounding apartment number 50, which Berlioz is now vacated thanks to him being dead. Um, obviously, Woland and company have moved into this apartment. Um, like, when Lakodeev, Berlioz's roommate, wakes up, he is apparently, like, really hungover. Apparently he was just, like, drunk all day long the day before, um, making deals, sleeping with women, it's heavily implied, um, and basically just doing whatever he wants because, like Berlioz, he enjoys a significant position of power. Um, Stiopa is the head of the variety theater, so he gets to decide what shows go on, which means he can make or break fortunes. Um, he will be plotting with writers to sort of elevate the ones that he wants and to ignore the ones he doesn't. He will decide which actresses become renowned and which ones are stuck in the chorus. Like, and as a consequence, you get the very strong suggestion that, like, he is using this position of power to enjoy sexual favors, to enjoy bribes. Like, this is pretty, pretty evident from the way that it's written here. Like, notice on page 76, there's this paragraph. Then the accursed green haze before his eyes dissolved, the words began to come out clearly, and above all, Stiopa remembered a thing or two. Namely, that it had taken place yesterday in Shkodnaya, at the dacha of the sketchwriter Kushtov, to which the same Kustov had taken Stiopa in a taxi. It was even a memory of having hired this taxi by the Metropole, and there was also some actor, not an actor, with a gramophone and a little suitcase. Yes, 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 it was at the dacha. The dogs, he remembered, had howled from this gramophone. Only the lady Stiopa had wanted to kiss remained unexplained. The devil knows who she was. Maybe she was in radio, maybe not. Notice that Stiopa is apparently, like, just totally unable to piece yesterday back together which makes it all the easier for Woolen to show up and be like yes we made a deal here is the paperwork and Stiopa's like I guess so like I'm in no position to say it wasn't I don't remember you but I don't remember much of what happened yesterday um but notice too that like when Woland and and, uh, and Kuroviev and Behemoth are resolving this conversation they get pretty direct with their accusations about Stiopa's 
indulgences. Um, so on page 81, like, Behemoth has walked in and things are getting very out of hand for poor Steopa, who can't figure out what the hell is going on. Their self, their self, Karovia, the long checkered one, sang in a goat's voice, referring to Steopa in the plural. Generally, their self has been up to some terrible swinishness lately, drinking, using their position to have liaisons with women. Don't do devil a thing and can't do anything because they don't know anything of what they're supposed to do. Pulling the wool over their superior's eyes. Availing himself of a government car, the snitched, chewing a mushroom. And here occurred the fourth and last appearance in the apartment as Stiopa, having slid all the way to the floor, clawed at the doorpost with an enfeebled hand. This is when Azazello first shows up and asks, allow me, Messiah, to chuck him the devil out of Moscow. He even goes so far as to say he's as much a director as I'm a bishop. Like, Stiopa Lakotiev is garbage at his job. He is drunk off his ass all the time, can't even remember what arrangements he's made with the talent. He seems to be absolutely abusing his power for the sake of personal favors, bribes, sexual favors. And so the devil chucks him the devil out of Moscow. Azazello magically transports him to Yalta, and he wakes up still quite hungover, thousands of miles away like yalta is very far from moscow we're talking about like moscow and relatively northern parts of of the russian like the western russian world yalta is right on the coast um this is a huge jump and like stiopa can't even believe it that he's been transported this far um We'll run into Steopa some more later. It's nice of the devil to leave him alive so, you know, we can actually, like, encounter him at some later part of the novel. Uh, but this is his punishment notice. You know, just as Pilate is wrong for condemning Yeshua, um, despite Yeshua's being completely innocent, honorable, and honest, truthful, and just as Berlioz is condemned by Wolin to die on the tram car because he sneaks off to report him to the secret police, here we have Stiopa punished for his corruption. Um, the devil and his company all agree this guy is an asshole. And he is an asshole. This is not an unfair judgment. He is absolutely abusing his position. He is absolutely enjoying perks he does not deserve. Like, there's no reason for him to be a high-powered businessman here. He is just knows how to pull the wool over his superior's eyes, as Behemoth puts it. He knows how to play the game. He's not talented. He lets other people do all the work for him. He just enjoys the favors and keeps everything nice and easy on his superior's side. And as a consequence, he enjoys way too much power. So they get rid of him. Gone. Out of the apartment. And they even mention that, like, the apartment has gotten too crowded for everyone and Stiopa is the one that's got to go. Woland, for whatever reason, is clearing the apartment out. Berlioz is dead. Stiopa has gone to Yalta. Now the devil holds court in apartment number 50. And notice, too, that apartment number 50 has a bit of a history. Like, at the beginning of this chapter with Stiopa Lakotiev, we're told that this is a naughty apartment. Like, as the chapter explains, that apparently there was, like, multiple people who went disappearing from this apartment at various points. Um, and there was apparently this possible scandal involving a jeweler's, like, wife carrying off a bunch of illicit jewelry and maybe some, you know, pre, uh, pre-communist Russia, like, gold coins as well. Um, 
notice that whenever Bulgakov starts to talk about these disappearances like he does in this section, um, as he talks about like Anna Francesevna and all of these characters who used to inhabit the apartment before Lakotiev and Berlioz took over, many of these characters mysteriously disappeared. And this mysterious disappearance strongly suggests that the secret police have just bagged them up and made them disappear. Like, we even get, you'll notice, Stiopa Lakotiev and Nikonor Ivanovich both notice, as they're walking through apartment number 50, that Berlioz's half of the apartment has been sealed. Like, government taped up, no one can enter or exit. All of this is considered highly unusual. Berlioz's death is considered highly unusual. And Berlioz himself is a sensitive individual wielding a lot of power. And as a consequence, as soon as he dies, the communist regime shows up, closes the place down to protect any secrets or any scandal that may arise out of this. And Lakotiev is kind of oblivious to this happening. Again, he's drunk off his ass, so what do you really expect at this point? Um... But also notice how gentle Bulgakov is about this. You can't write about the secret police explicitly in Soviet Russia. That is not allowed. So instead he frames this as though it's all these mysterious, unexplained disappearances. People going missing in the night and how, like, the, the poor housemaid is worried that, like, it, there's, there's, like, a demonic possession or something. That people are, like, disappearing due to supernatural reasons. Notice that Bulgakov conflates the two. We're going to revisit this idea a little bit later. Um, but Bulgakov is sort of slyly talking about the rather ugly reality of living in so Soviet Russia, that your neighbors could go missing at any moment for, for fairly unexplained reasons. Maybe they were engaged in some kind of counter-espionage, or maybe they were, you know, secretly harboring, you know, like secret documents or something. You'll notice that Nikonor Ivanovich himself is disappeared at the end of his chapter. Like, he is the landlord, and you'll notice that he, too, is abusing his position. Like, as much as he resents all these people contacting him all the live-long day, he is very much enjoying all the bribes and all of the advantages of having this fancy apartment that everybody wants. Remember that passage we talked about, about the, like, pregnancy confession and the threats and the bribes and the libel and the two suicide promises like i will kill myself if i don't get that apartment nikonor ivanovich is very much enjoying this position and notice that like when he meets woland i.e koroviev because at this point koroviev is acting as woland's interpreter and woland is not present koroviev is basically greasing some serious palms here like nikonor ivanovich gets to enjoy all the gravy on this one um, Woland is not going to be a permanent tenant, so Nikonor Ivanovich, like, this is just a week-long, you know, like, lapse, um, and it's going to take him a week or two to find tenants anyway, so, you know, this is perfect for him, like, he gets to receive, like, 3,500 rubles just for letting this guy stay in there, only Korovyev is like, man, why not jump it up to 5,000, you know, who cares, he's a millionaire, it's a drop in the bucket for him, and, you know, here's poor Nikonor Ivanovich, like, I guess. And then in addition to the 5,000 that he's getting, all of which is in cash, so he doesn't have to report any of it. Like, he has plans for it to, you know, pay off the heating bill, which has apparently gotten a bit out of hand. Shocker, you know, the housing situation is only matched by the limitations of, like, heating and food and all the other problems. Um, 
But Nikonor Ivanovich, in addition to the 5,000, receives also a 400-ruble bribe. Like, they're just slicking his palm every which way, and Koroviev doesn't have a problem with it, and Nikonor Ivanovich, for better or worse, just goes along with it. And notice that he, too, is punished for what he does. It's right after he leaves that we get Woland, the one line, really, um, that he has in this entire chapter. He says, I didn't like this Nikonor Ivanovich. He is a chiseler and a crook. Can it be arranged so that he doesn't come anymore? And Koroviev says, Messiah, you have only say to say the word. And Koroviev calls the secret police and reports Nikonor Ivanovich for speculating in foreign currency. Now, this is itself kind of its own Soviet thing, and, you know, it is far beyond me to explain the economic details of, like, how this works. Um, but the communist ruble was a very sort of unreliable currency, um, and it famously degenerated in value, like, really quickly. Inflation was positively out of control um, in Soviet Russia. So as a consequence, the logical thing to do if you are, you know, a citizen is to invest in foreign currency. Take all the money you've got and buy dollars or buy francs or buy Deutschmarks, um, a more stable form of currency. Keep the, that currency around and then trade it in for more rubles when you need to actually spend it. That way you'll get more rubles for your buck. Um, this is a way of sort of preventing your, you know, investment from getting out of control. Like, the inflation won't hit you as hard. But this is largely considered unpatriotic and completely uncommunist against the party, so it is forbidden by the government. Now, we're going to see later that people who have foreign money are also allowed quite a few other perks. Like, if you're traveling from Germany, Stalin wants to make sure you get choice accommodations, and so you will be impressed and go home with a favorable report about how awesome communism is. So there are actually stores throughout Moscow and St. Petersburg that will only accept foreign currency, which makes it all the more important that the average citizen not have access to it, or else they'd be able to enjoy perks they don't deserve, according to the communist regime. This is how messed up the economy is. But notice, too, that Nikonor Ivanovich is accused of speculating in foreign currency, and when the secret police show up to wreck the place, they find that the 400 rubles he deposited in his bathroom have magically transformed into American dollars. Nikonor Ivanovich doesn't understand how this happened. Again, he accepted a bribe, which is, you know, not great, but he's not speculating in foreign currency, and he shouts out that he's been sort of framed by his enemies, which isn't wrong. But notice that this, is, this supernatural punishment, the magical transformation of rubles into dollars, is itself the way that Wolin punishes him. He is a chiseler and a crook. Get rid of him. And notice that he's right about this. Like we've seen at every stage of these punishments, you know, Woland condemning Berlioz, Woland condemning Lakotayev, Woland condemning uh, Nikonor Ivanovich, in all of these cases, they're telling the truth. They're calling a spade a spade. It is the truth that destroys them. The truth in a little black magic, anyway. Uh, Berlioz is 
totally lying about his disbelief in the Bible. He is totally lying about his position and totally manipulating the situation to his benefit. Lukodeev is taking advantage of his position. He is not a director. He is no more a director than Azazello is a bishop. And here's Nikonor Ivanovich, who is absolutely, no question, a chiseler and a crook. And all three of them receive their punishment. Berlioz is decapitated, Lakotaev gets magically transported to Yalta, and Nikonor Ivanovich, through some magic currency, gets shipped off to the secret prisons, where we'll actually meet him again later. But notice the trajectory here. Notice that Bulgakov is showing us a world where the judge and jury and executioner in a corrupt system are not, you know, trial by jury or anything like that. It's the devil. The devil is enacting justice because communist Soviet Russia can't do it itself. Keep that in mind. Because remember, the very beginning, the, the very first thing we talked about in this text, the epitaph that, you know, I am that which eternally wills evil and eternally works good, this has a very different light right now. Like, once upon a time when we were talking about Milton, Milton was talking about how the devil was, like, wanting to do bad things and instead did good things out of spite. Like, the God is so powerful, so awesome, that he works it out despite the devil's best interests. But notice here that what Bulgakov is stressing is that the devil isn't doing good by accident. The devil is doing good because punishing people is the right thing to do. Evil has run so rampant in Soviet Russia that it takes the devil to set things right. And as much as the devil is always an image of evil in so many of the stories that we've read, he is, at the end of the day, the same, that, that same figure, that same image, is actually a staple of the Christian notion of justice. The people who go to hell deserve to go to hell. The people who die due to black magic in Bulgakov's story deserve to die. They're bad people. They're taking advantage of the system. They're profiting off of people's suffering. Lakodeev is making people miserable, totally ignoring perfectly good writers for the sake of his own benefit. Berlioz is ignoring perfectly good talent for the sake of keeping himself happy and fat and comfortable in his apartment. Nikonor Ivanovich is ignoring the plight of a lot of people, including a couple people who are so desperate that they're claiming to, to commit suicide, for the sake of greasing his own palms. These are bad people, just as Pilate is wrong for condemning an innocent man to death, for condemning a man who did nothing more than just speak the truth. Bulgakov is exposing the corruption in this system, and he's punishing it, and he's taking so much joy in it. Like, feel free to laugh at their misfortune, at drunk Stiopa Lakotiev waking up in Yalta with no fucking clue how this happened and passing out on the spot, or Nikonor Ivanovich, you know, getting ready to eat his fancy soup, and suddenly here's the police at the door ready to carry him off. It's funny. They deserve it. There's joy in their comeuppance. And we are just getting started.